You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. These lines from P.P. Bliss's classic hymn are powerful, but are they true? While most would concede that Jesus' status as Savior is a biblical idea, the consensus among New Testament scholars is that Bliss's substitutionary language, in my place he stood, is a theological imposition alien to the New Testament writer's intent. Instead, they contend, Christ's atoning work is better represented in terms of identification, representation, and participation. Simon Gathercole wants to push back at this consensus. In his book, Defending Substitution, Gathercole argues that substitution is an important element in Paul's understanding of atonement, demonstrating this claim with rigorous exegesis and showing that alternative theories ultimately, and ironically, cannot replace substitution. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Simon Gathercole. Senior Lecturer in New Testament Studies and Fellow at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, and author of Defending Substitution, an Essay on Atonement and in Paul from Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Gathercole. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get into the substance of the book, uh, I usually ask a, uh, like to ask authors about how uh, their projects originated. I'm an outsider to the field of, of biblical studies, but it seems to me that um, in the oh, past few years that more scholars have been stepping up to make exegetical, exegetical cases for some of the received orthodox or evangelical positions that the field in general rejects. Um, mm. The early high Christology movements, um, the justification debates of the last 15 or 20 years. You've made a, contribu- a contribution to both of those debates, do you see this project as something in the same vein? Yes, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but uh, but yes, I think it 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 certainly is closely connected to the work that I I did actually in my PhD thesis on on justification, mm. and I suppose I've been concerned uh, as I've read Paul Pauline scholarship more and more that uh, in particular in this area of atonement, there's there's a, a majority of, of of scholarship that is. I think sort of underplayed uh, substitution that has reacted against uh, traditional pictures, and I think that's something one finds, you know, very commonly in uh, in scholarship that uh, in the attempt to attain objectivity and neutra- neutrality in 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 historical scholarship, there's a, a sort of knee-jerk reaction against positions which are are sort of part of Christian orthodoxy, and mm-hmm. in some ways, in the last in the last generation. There's been a, 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 a turn back to, uh, to to orthodox positions, partly because these these uh, reactions, these rejections of traditional um, understandings of Christian doctrines, have been seen to be just excessive. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, your introduction notes that the arguments in this particular book were uh, presented in other venues before mm. they were published uh, in this form which uh, was actually where uh, I, I was introduced to that because of, because of YouTube. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so is there a difference between the lecture material and the book? 
have you gotten helpful response or critique that's resulted in new material? Yes, I mean, it, it began actually uh, at the uh, as a single lecture, 45 minutes or so, at the SBL meeting, which is uh, the Society of Biblical Literature mm. uh, um, conference, which happens every November in the United States, and which is the the main academic gathering of biblical scholars. Mm. Um, and it was in, in one of the sessions where I first uh, gave this material in, in, in one paper. And then then it expanded into two lectures, and where, which I gave in various places. And then finally, I suppose the final version really was the um, was then three lectures at uh, Acadia Divinity College in, mm-hmm. in Canada. And uh, Craig Evans, who is the professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College, edits the the series of volumes that this is part of, the the, the Haywood lectures, which uh, happen every year, are, are published in this in this series. And so uh, I'm grateful to Craig for accommodating these lectures, both in his university and in the series of in the series of books. So yes, it it, it, it was very much a result of uh, academic interaction that uh, that meant that I had to respond to certain objections, expand, uh, elaborate uh, on what initially was just a 40-minute talk or lecture and um, and end up as a 128-page book, yeah. Great. Well, your subject is substitution, so what are we talking about when we're talking about substitution, and what are we not talking about? Mm. Well, one of the things I, I try to uh, clarify in the book just at the outset is that substitution is something quite precise, mm-hmm. uh, namely that Christ died in our place uh, instead of us taking on himself something which uh, we will therefore not have to take on sin and, and judgment um, and what I what I try to uh, explain in the book is that I think in the minds of many Christians substitution is inextricably entwined with with other doctrines and in some ways that's in some ways that's right and um, you know, the atonement is is more than substitution. I, I'm not trying to end the book that substitution is simply what Jesus achieved on the on the cross and nothing else. Um, but certainly, substitution needs to be distinguished from representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're two quite different ideas. Substitution being that Christ died instead of us in our place. Uh, representation being that Christ uh, embodied us in his in his death. So. In substitution, we weren't with Christ dying on the cross. In representation, in a sense, we were with Christ uh, dying on the cross. Um, right. So those are those those are the sort of two main contrasts that one finds and, and finds quite commonly, I suppose, in in, in biblical scholarship. Um, and and also uh, um, substitution needs to be distinguished, at least uh, in principle, from other ideas like propitiation, satisfaction, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and punishment. So. Uh, I was I was trying to just at the outset to sort of clear the ground by specifying exactly what it is that I'm arguing for and what I'm not. So I don't I don't get into the whole area of propitiation and satisfaction in the book. Mm-hmm. Though in you know if one were writing a book on uh, you know the full biblical understanding of atonement, um, one might include those. So, so my my uh, subtitle the subtitle of my book is deliberately sort of modest, you know, an essay on atonement in Paul. You know, it's not uh, the atonement in Paul uh, from right. Al Omega. <laughs> yeah. 
I thought that was useful to uh, to make those kinds of distinctions at the outset, especially since um, some of the objections that you bring up to substitution in the introduction seem not so much to be objections to substitution itself as to what, in particular models of atonement, substitution is meant to accomplish. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, so I think I'd like to address uh, a couple of those uh, at the outset, not all of it for the sake of time, but two of them in particular, it seems to me that your arguments about 1 Corinthians and Romans um, kind of provide answers to them in a way. Mm -hmm. But uh, the moral complaint of substitution as a kind of child abuse or whatever, um, yeah. angry, violent God, and then the idea of guilt being non-transferable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what? do you want me to address yeah, those? Yeah, oh, sorry. I, yeah. I should phrase it in the form of a question. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I think on the first on the first point that uh, that just I, I suppose in some ways they're both different dimensions of of the question of whether substitution is moral. Mm -hmm. um, and so on the first on the first point, one sometimes finds the objection made that, uh, as as my fellow countryman Steve Chalk put it a few years back. That justification, uh, the substitution, is a kind of um, mo uh, cosmic child abuse, mm. where God the Father uh, inflicts the punishment on on his un, you know unsuspecting son, um, and so uh, you know this this is therefore uh, since Jesus doesn't deserve it, this is this is therefore some kind of uh, infraction of God's goodness and 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 morality. I think on that on that first point, the 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 point that I would emphasise is that this really gives us a faulty. This is this gives a, a wrong impression of of who God is. And I think when one understands who 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 God is, then substitution works uh, very well. If one assumes that Jesus is simply a third party with no real connection with uh, with 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 God, then uh, that that there might be a case for making that kind of argument, but if one if one takes the view that uh, God is Trinity and that the persons of the Trinity act uh, in harmony with one another, then this is no this is no uh, you know God who's acting upon a, a upon a, a third party, but God who Himself is undertaking to uh, to take the place to, to take to take our place. So. Uh, in that, in that sense, it's it's significant that Paul says in in Galatians, for example, that uh, Christ gave Himself for me. So the idea is not that uh, is not merely that God sent His Son mm -hmm. and in, inflicted sin or punishment or whatever upon the Son, but that that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, loved me and gave Himself for me. He gave Himself for our sins, as he as, he, as Paul puts it in Galatians one. Christ loved me and gave him gave himself for me, as Paul puts it in Galatians two. So, I think uh, one of the uh, moral objections really runs aground on that point that mm. that uh, God is Trinity and that Christ is an active agent in the atonement, not not merely a sort of passive victim. Uh, and so, as as uh, you know, one one of our leading churchmen in the eighteen in in, in, the, in the 20th century in England, John Stott, put it that this is the self-substitution of God, uh, not uh, him simply inflicting substitutionary punishment on someone else. So that, I think, is the the, the, um, 
uh, well, one response at least, the, the response that I give in the book to this objection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on the, on the other objection, the, the objection that guilt is, is non-transferable, this is something which has had a long, a long run in philosophical discussion since, well, since the time of Kant, really. So for well over well over two hundred years, and uh, I think I think um, it's also had something of a new life in in the work of uh, Christopher Hitchens, you know, the um, mm-hmm. American-based British uh, writer who who, di- who died quite recently. Where he he I don't think he names Kant particularly, but takes up the same objection really in in very similar terms that right. substitution in you know, I think this is, this comes in his. Uh, God is not great book, and also in the the wonderful dialogue that he has with uh, Doug Wilson uh, in the DVD and book called Collision, uh, where he uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, the atheist, and Doug Wilson, the traditional Christian debate. In a, in a, I don't know if you've uh, seen it or if any of the hearers have, have seen it, but I'd recommend it to anyone to to watch it. Where again, Hitchens makes the point that substitution is immoral because it's un, it's uh, immoral for me to want someone else to to take the punishment for my guilt and if someone agrees to do that if uh, uh, as we had in the case of one of our politicians recently who uh, got his wife to to pay, to take the uh, the penalty points for him speeding you know <laughs> <laughs> uh it wasn't just uh, he that was immoral for uh, uh, for getting his wife to take the the penalty points for his uh, fast driving, but it was immoral too for her to be complicit in this substitution. Mm-hmm. And so, similarly, it's not just immoral of us to want Christ to die in our place; it's immoral of Christ to be complicit in this uh, immoral act. And uh, I suppose there are a few responses one could one could give to that. Uh, and again, it goes back to. In, in part to the uh, understanding of the, of the Trinity and again properly understanding Christ's uh, place in relation to God, God the Father and Christ's inclusion within the divine identity mm-hmm. uh, such that if uh, God is free then God can uh, especially if he is taking the penalty himself God can uh, exercise mercy and freedom towards us, and since he is the offended party, uh, it's 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 up to him. So it's up to him to to do that if he wants. Now, for some, that might be a um, you know, giving God too much uh, uh, too much liberty. But again, uh, God is characterized by freedom, and so we shouldn't try to sort of set rules for what God is and is not allowed to do and is allowed to do. So that would be my uh, response to the to the second objection. Right. Your main um, your main ob- uh, objections that you're answering, uh, though through the the bulk of the book, are not these uh, these kind of moral or philosophical objections, but the the exegetical ones. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I don't think we have time for all of it, and and we wouldn't be able to. Uh, well, I wouldn't want people to think that this. <laughs> that this interview could replace them reading the book anyway. <laughs> um, but I would like to to hear a bit about one of these because it seems to be the one that you interact with uh, m- the most in uh, in the uh, kind of the heart of your argument, 
which uh-huh. is the the Tubingen school's um, view of representative place taking. Uh huh. Yeah. Which is really complicated for someone who's not <laughs> in that field. Um, wh- what? Wh- how is that different from substitution? Because in some ways it seems so similar that standing over here in an English department, um, <laughs> it's a little diff- difficult sometimes for me to see the differences between the two. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question, and I, I think I, I think there is it is quite a fine distinction, and it's it, I, I hope it's not too sort of convoluted me explaining it in audio form because uh, <laughs> both in the both in the book and uh, always you know in my lectures when I'm talking about this I always sort of scribble frantically on the board and draw diagrams and uh, <laughs> and so on to to explain it, but but essentially it, it, it's uh, it's an understanding of Christ's atoning work on the cross which. Mm-hmm is modeled very, very uh, closely on the understanding of the sacrificial system in, in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that uh, in this, in this uh, sacrificial system in Leviticus, and this is, you know, this is, uh, I'm, not, I'm not presenting this as what Leviticus means, but this is the view taken on this, uh, on this understanding of, of atonement, which is, which is particularly uh, strongly held in, in Germany. Uh, as you say, it, and it had its origins particularly in in Tubingen University among an old in, in a, with an Old Testament scholar there, and the 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 understanding uh, of you know I first I first I'll sort of just uh, sketch out the understanding in the Old Testament and then how the New Testament is thought to to map onto that. Mm-hmm. The idea is that uh, the sins of the people of Israel are are not transferred onto the bull or the, or, or, the, or the goats in the uh, sacrificial system. Of course, remember you have um, uh, you have three animals, mm-hmm. two who are sacrificed in the uh, and whose blood is sprinkled. The two who are sacrificed and whose blood is sprinkled in the in the holy of holies. One for Aaron and his household, and one for the for the rest of the people. And then, of course, you have the uh, the scapegoat who's who's, dis- who's not killed, but who's dispatched off into the wilderness. Right. And the idea, in in particular, with the first two animals, where uh, they're sacrificed and their blood is is, is sprinkled in the holy of holies, is that uh, these uh, animals aren't again so much aren't so much substitutes for the people. So it's not that they experience death instead of in place of the people of Israel, mm-hmm. but that they somehow bear the identity of Israel. They're representative. They're more like representatives, in other words. Okay. So uh, they they uh, take on the identity of Israel, and it happens it happens really this way: the priest, of course, is commonly understood to be a representative of the people, you know, not a substitute because he's part of the people. So uh, he he, but he is nevertheless a representative of the whole uh, of the nation. Then, when the priest lays hands on or lays a hand on the animal, when the priest does that, he's not sort of shoving sins onto the animal on this understanding, but creating a kind of bond between himself and the animal. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's, he's delegating something, delegating a role to that animal. The, 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 the priest and certainly the whole people of Israel can't all go into the Holy of Holies partly because they wouldn't fit but partly because they would they would they, partly because they would die if they did um but uh, but what happens is that the the animal 
uh, at least in the form of his blood, in the form of its blood, can go into the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. And so the animal bears the identity of the people through the laying on of the hand of the priest. And uh, the blood of the animal then takes that whole identity into the Holy of Holies and comes into contact with God in the Holy of Holies. So just through that blood on this understanding, uh, the whole people has actually come into contact with God again, having been alienated, having forfeited their life. They now experience the, the reunification with, with the glory of God. So that's, uh, that's, um, uh, that's the Old Testament system in a nutshell. It's a series of delegations, if you like, that, that the people delegate to the priest as their representative. Uh, the priest delegates the role of representative to the animal and the animal's blood carries the life of the animal into into the holy of holies to contact with god again so i hope that's not too uh, uh <laughs> too incomprehensible <laughs> well, uh, but uh, that's that's the old testament system uh, on this understanding in a nutshell and then mm-hmm. we can uh, we can then we can map the uh, the action of christ onto that which is not identical uh, they 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 would concede but uh, is, is 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 similar in that uh, Christ uh, carries out, Christ comes as our representative and uh, goes through death. Mm-hmm. Key point in this system is not that pe- not that the people avoid death, but in the person of the the representative go through death, mm-hmm. go through the penalty of death. So similarly, Christ goes through the penalty of death on the cross, uh, bears bears us with him, takes us through that penalty with him, but out the other side into glory and into uh, reconciliation with God. So that's what, uh, that's what Christ achieves on, on this model. It's not so much that uh, sins are, are transferred onto Christ and that he then dies for our sins, but he dies as our representative, carrying us with him into death, into punishment on the cross, but through out the other side um, into 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 glory through the resurrection. So that that would be my uh, my my brief summary. Is there anything that uh, you you want me to clarify there? <laughs> well, I, I had one question as I was reading, and and what I hear is that in this in this uh, view, Christ's representative place taking operates by the same mechanism, so to speak, as the Levitical system. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that the cross works in that sense in the same way that the altar works mm-hmm. um, but my reading of uh, and I, I know this is not a, a move that I can make in the bl- in the biblical studies field <laughs> to wander a feel a wander out of Paul but my reading of Hebrews is that the old tax the Old Testament sacrifices were not effective in mm-hmm. that sense that sins weren't expunged um, but were passed over, as mm-hmm. uh, re- as it says in Romans three. Yeah, I- yeah. Is that an argument against this particular view uh, from a theological angle? I'm not sure if it necessarily is, because you could see you you could simply see the uh, Levitical system all along as something which uh, symbolized what Christ was going to accomplish on the cross. Okay. So you, it could work either way. You could see it as uh, um, you, you could see it as. Uh, I, I don't think this particular view uh, necessarily means that the system is actually effective or not. It okay. probably, you're, perhaps you're right. Perhaps it leans sort of slightly in the direction of 
assuming its uh, its efficacy, but um, it, ne- it needn't necessarily assume that. I don't think. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a side kind of a side road anyway. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, one of the overarching complaints that you have about the the different exegetical challenges to substitution is that each of them doesn't do justice to the idea of sins in the plural um, and I, I guess sins in the individual as, mm-hmm. as well. Uh-huh. Uh, do you want to unpack that? Yes, I think I think uh, one of one of the objections I'm making to I think a, a big section of scholarship which uh, doesn't necessarily all have a single view but which mm-hmm. has important concerns in common and I suppose the important concern in common is particularly that idea of representation where uh, in in the view of rep- representation uh, on the atonement there is a sense that Christ embodies us and goes through uh, with us mm-hmm. uh, enters into the situation of sin and Adamic humanity and death uh, taking us through that and uh, bringing us to glory afterwards uh, through the resurrection. There's a sense in which Jesus embodies embodies us uh, as people, which is which is of course great and an important mm-hmm. ingredient in the atonement. But uh, often it's very much marginalised the idea that Jesus bears our guilt and uh, uh, is our substitute, takes takes our sins uh, upon himself. And uh, I think uh, there are there are a few different reasons for this. Sometimes uh, uh, the the point is made, for example, that uh, in Jesus' teaching and in the Book of Acts, there's quite a lot of emphasis in, in G- John the Baptist already. Uh, there's quite a lot of emphasis on the forgiveness of sins, mm-hmm. and Paul doesn't use that phrase very much, if at all. And so, um, when uh, in, in in pointing out the difference, as scholars often do, between uh, the Gospels and Acts on the one hand and Paul on the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often thought that Paul doesn't have this sort of uh, interest, therefore, in, in forgiveness of sins. And so that and that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm uh, one of the ideas I'm trying to combat in in the book and uh, to emphasize that Paul actually is interested in uh, Christ dealing with individual sins, uh, as well as what uh, for some scholars are, are the sort of bigger issues like um, death and subjection to subjection to sinful passions and the power of the devil and uh, but uh, Paul is actually also interested in in Christ dying for our sins Hmm. it seemed to me that in downplaying particular sins um, at least in 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 the way it was presented in the book uh, it it seemed to me that the downplaying of, of particular sins seemed to be connected to a reluctance to find, I guess, what I could call uh, an individual element in the atonement. Mm. The idea that Christ's death is for individual persons, not just categories or groups of persons. Is that is that a fair impression? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think uh, I think often there's an emphasis on categories, mm. on 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 on, uh, on on death, for example, and uh, the the situation of humanity in Adam. The subjection to uh, hostile powers, you know, cosmically rather than individually, mm-hmm. uh, and and so uh, I, I mean, I'm I'm not attempting to make a particularly indivi- particularly individualistic argument in the in the book, but uh, right. I think that's a, I think that's a, a dimension of it that that uh, is one implication. 
um, one could one could point to other things as well. For if say for example, uh, on on one one of the models that I discuss, um, there's an emphasis on uh, humanity as victims of uh, subjection to hostile powers, mm-hmm. and uh, th- therefore that uh, what Christ achieves is really liberation from uh, subjection to those hostile powers. And and for some scholars, but by no means all, but for for, for some scholars, I think this has appeal because it again t- detracts, it takes away from the uh, the takes away from guilt uh, and uh, and makes us all victims, which of course makes everyone feel better. You know? <laughs> we know we're, we're not guilty, but we're victims. Well, especially the the notion of individual guilt, which yeah, um, yeah, it, I I don't know about in in these particular presentations that you're interacting with, but in other things that I've read, um, the, the the at least some attempt has been made to represent my individual guilt as as something that I get from Martin Luther and no further back than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I, again that that that's where this um, uh, feeds quite neatly into the just the, the discussion of justification, because again, justification can be regarded as uh, in by some scholars as 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 an overly corporate mm-hmm. uh, action. Um, whereas if one if one looks at the way in which uh, justification is related to faith, then faith, faith is, is, is very much uh, an individual act as well as a, a, a corporate act of the church. And uh, you know, trusting the divine promise is something that uh, individuals um, do as well as the church as a body. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, I think we'd better turn to what's really the core of your argument, which is not, um, not just uh, sort of critiquing other people's views, but presenting your own <laughs> positive case. Um, Chapter 2, you deal with uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15.3 mm-hmm. and uh, uh, un- unpack that, which it, it was really interesting for me to kind of compare these two because you seem to be doing something similar in both. Um, mm-hmm. You seem to be analyzing a pattern of substitution, which Paul is, uh, at least in your in your presentation, that Paul is developing in conversation with another text or yeah. textual tradition. Yeah. So yeah. I, let, let's unpack that first one then. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, it might sound like a very small subject for a, for a, for a, for a chat, you know, to have a whole chapter on, on basically one verse, where, mm-hmm. as, you, as you say, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, but it is, it is quite an important one, and it's one Paul mm-hmm. that, uh, it was one that Paul himself signals uh, as of, as, well, as he puts it, uh, as of first importance. It comes in the, the beginning of the, uh, the gospel as he recounts it, back to the Corinthians, you know, what, what he preached to them when he was with them, uh, where he says, uh, what I received myself, I, I passed on also to you as of first importance. Mm-hmm. And then he gives in you know, very brief compass his uh, summary of the gospel, as he, as he has just said, you know, this is the gospel that he preaches to, um, that he preached to the Corinthians. And more importantly, still, he says that, uh, still afterwards, that this is the gospel which he preached, but not just he, uh, but also all the apostles, you know, all the uh, all the witnesses of the resurrection shared this same gospel, and it consists essentially in two two events: that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, uh, and that he was buried, you know, confirmation of, of, of the death, uh, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and uh, appeared. And so uh, it's really these two events of Christ's death for our sins and the resurrection. Uh, on the third day, that that constitute Paul's 
Paul's gospel. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, he spends lots of time at different places in the letters unpacking, unpacking the significance of those mm-hmm. two great events. But those two events are at the core. And, and in this book, I, you know, I, I don't even try to get into the uh, resurrection because that would you know, mean another book again. But, um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but just to concentrate on this, the meaning of this phrase, uh, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And, and as you say, uh, this is something which he is, in, is you know, in formulating it this way. He is signaling that his understanding, his, his statement of Christ's death for our sins brings himself, brings him into conversation with other texts, as he explicitly puts it. You know, this is Christ's death for our sins, according to the scriptures. It's not just some new Christian, Christian idea that's come out of the clear blue sky, uh, but it's 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 uh, come in conformity with the scriptures and so the question then arises which scriptures mm-hmm. and one could could provide several answers to that the, you know, the answer as i say that as i've mentioned already that the tubingen school provide is well leviticus 16 basically mm-hmm. um but i think that uh, for various reasons that doesn't quite uh, quite satisfy um uh, and the the answer that I provide, which is which is not a particularly controversial uh, answer in some ways, is that the prime text, the prime uh, uh, text that Paul is in conversation with in formulating it this way, is the great chapter Isaiah 53, where we have the suffering servant uh, who 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 uh, who dies uh, in the course of Israel's history and uh, dies as a result of the affliction of his fellow fellow Israelites. Mm-hmm. Uh, they persecute him, persecute him to death. And uh, later, however, uh, in Isaiah 53, these Israelites come to the shocking realization that uh, he was actually this this uh, servant figure was actually innocent, and that they brought about the death of an innocent victim. Uh, and more than that, that somehow this death of this innocent victim brought about their redemption. Mm. So. Uh, even just sticking, you know, that's just sticking within the framework of Isaiah 53 itself, that uh, um, that, that uh, they brought him to death. We we regarded him as one cursed by God, uh, but uh, the punishment that brought us peace came upon him. So the, the, the redemption that brought us peace with God uh, was, was uh, a result of it being inflicted on the discipline that was inflicted upon him. Mm. And uh, so one scholar whom I, whom I discuss a bit in the book, uh, the German scholar Bernd Janowski, uh, talks about this as a drama of delayed recognition, which I think is a wonderfully pithy phrase capturing what's, what, what Isaiah 53 is about. At, 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 uh, at one phase, uh, Israel inflicts this, this, this uh, persecution upon the servant, but then there's a delayed recognition of who he really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this, this uh, uh, in, in broad terms, and we can get into the details as well, but in broad terms, uh, this maps very well onto uh, what's going on in, in the death of Christ as well. That, um, say, say, for example, if you read the book of Acts, you, 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 you see that um, at, uh, at Pentecost, uh, when the public announcement is, is, is given by Peter in the Pentecost speech, that... Uh, uh, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Uh, there's a there's a, a shocking recognition that mm-hmm. uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who who previously shouted out "Crucify him," uh, now realise who Jesus really was, and uh, that uh, in what they did, 
redemption came for them and so they need to repent and and and, and uh receive the holy spirit and similarly similarly in 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 paul uh in in paul talking about uh, the de- the death of christ for our sins according to the scriptures uh this death for sins formula uh, very much picks up on the language that's used uh, about the suffering servant in in Isaiah 53 so that's 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 uh, that would be my initial sort of statement of of uh, what Paul means in in that important verse you spend a a good bit of time in this chapter drawing uh uh, the close parallels, um, not just between uh, the conceptual content of Isaiah 53, but also the linguistic parallels between um, Isaiah 53 and the Septuagint, and uh, Paul's precise wording in, um, well, in 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 First Corinthians 15, but also other uh, Pauline passages that seem to be echoing um, Isaiah 53 as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I particularly appreciated that, um, even though I, I'm not a New Testament studies guy. I don't read Greek, but I can tell when one word is the same as another word <laughs> in a chart. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think I think I think uh, it, yeah. It's very it's fairly easy to see if you compare. I know I've, I've sort of set it out in a table in the book that yes. if you you know if you look at the structure of Paul's statement, Christ died for our sins. It, it, it's, it, there's a, there are very similar statements all the way through Isaiah 53. You know, mm-hmm. He bears our sins. He suffers pain for us. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was beaten for our sins. He ha- he was handed over for our sins. He was led to death by my people's iniquity, and so on and so on and so on. You know, the the the, the, the whole structure of Paul's statement and the uh, the structure of those repeated statements, along with the individual words as well, is is very close between Isaiah 53 and uh, and, and Paul. Right. So, uh, of course, because you have substitution very clearly, as most people concede in, in Isaiah 53, uh, it makes sense to understand the language in the same way uh, in Paul. Mm-hmm. There's one other uh, there's one other passage that I also bring Paul into conversation with here, and that's uh, a rather obscure passage, but but uh, um, but one which has echoes all around the the rest of the Old Testament as well, and that's a statement in the Book of Kings about King Zimri. Oh, and yes. uh, now this, this is probably not uh, you know one of those memory verses that uh, <laughs> uh, people learn in Sunday in Sunday school, but it's I think it's quite an important one for 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 for, for Paul here. Not necessarily because Paul uh, knew it, but because uh, and and not necessarily because he's you know actually alluding to it directly, but because it it shows the way in which biblical Greek talks about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in, in 1 Kings, you know, Zimri is one of those bad kings, like there are a lot of in 1 Kings. And uh, there's this statement that Zimri died for his sins, uh, which he himself had committed, it goes on. Um, now, the phrase Zimri died for his sins in Greek is basically, you know, apart from the fact that it's Zimri in, in 1 Kings and Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, is is exactly the same. Uh Died for our sins, apethanin hyperton hamartion, and so uh, again, I think this is this is revealing as well, uh, because death is in the divine economy the consequence of sin. Uh, death is the divine the divine penalty for sin, and uh, if you, if you sin, you will surely die, as you know was already said very early on in Genesis, and so when Paul says that Christ died for our sins. 
uh, he's making, I think, a clear theological point. The natural thing that one expects, and which one finds, not just with Zimri, but uh, with a whole host of other Old Testament characters as well, is that they die for their sins. Mm. Uh, they die for their own sins. Uh, and so I suppose what Paul is communicating in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the miracle of the gospel is that Christ died not for his own sins, but for our sins. Mm. And so because Christ has died for our sins, uh, we don't have to. And that, uh, that, that, that I suppose, is where uh, substitution comes in again, not just through seeing it against the backdrop of Isaiah 53, but seeing it against the backdrop of what the relationship between sin and death is in the Old Testament, that uh, the, the, the expected norm is you die for your sins. Right. Someone dies for their own sins. But uh, in, in Paul's wonderful gospel, Christ dies for our sins, and so we won't have to die for our sins. So that's the other conversation partner for Paul. Right. Well, I, I appreciated that you, you brought that... Um as you, as you say, it was it's an obscure reference, and it was not one that I memorized. <laughs> but it really does help to bring it into conversation because it helps to show why the um, you talk about the drama of delayed recognition in Isaiah fifty three uh-huh. um, that there's a reason why the vicariousness of the death of the servant is the amazing twist at the end. So yeah. Yeah. Because it because it is running contra uh, to this uh, this entire expectation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In that's the right. Testament. Yeah. Yes. I mean, as a, as a as a literature person, I mean, uh, you, you must have uh, read, read countless dramas where at the end there's there's what's called a recognition scene. Yes. Uh, where you you know you. Uh, um, you the 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 identity of a particular character is is sort of masked. Uh, not 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 necessarily for the audience, but for the, for, for the participants in the in the drama, and then at, at last in the drama, uh, there you know, it, um, it's very common in Greek tragedy as well. You know, mm-hmm. I suppose Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is a classic example, isn't it? Where um, <laughs> where um, Viola and uh, what's her brother's name, uh, oh. they, you know, their, their identities become become clear at the end. Right. <laughs> Cesario, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it, it is. It is very like that, and and it also uh, raising that point also helped uh, help me uh, to to kind of see this uh, particular section too as a kind of response to the um, the non transferability of guilt objection. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it it seemed to me as you were as you were um, treating both Isaiah fifty three and First Corinthians that uh, that the presentation of the substitutionary death of the servant and the substitutionary death of Christ, both of those are to be both of those are working against the expectation of the context in which this revelation, this this twist is 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 uh, revealed. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that's I think that's precisely the the point both that Isaiah and 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 Paul are making in that um uh, Isaiah prefaces his whole section on the on the servant by saying, "Who has believed our message?" You know, he 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 knows that he's about to recount something extraordinary. Right. Um, so it's not presented as just you know this is the way in which things usually run, and that you know this chap died for died for other people's sins. You know, this is by no means an everyday everyday occurrence. And similarly with the uh, with, with with the death of Christ, Paul presents this as gospel. It's it's news, right. uh, and and it and it and it's good news and. Uh, because if 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 everyone if we did carry on simply 
all dying for our own sins, then we'd all we'd all perish. And so we need an intervention uh, that uh, that contradicts the normal logic of uh, commutative justice. You know, we 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 need an intervention of mercy. Uh, and so it's no it's, it's no use saying oh, this is this is um, you know this doesn't. Uh, uh, add up logically and mathematically. You know, uh, I, I, I don't want I don't want things to add up logically and mathematically. I want mercy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and and the idea that the surprise would have been built in from the beginning to say yes, this is exactly not what you would expect. Um, yeah. This yeah, is the unexpected. Yeah. Is is yeah. Uh, a, a defense that's that's built right into the text. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see. I see our clock ticking down, and I want, mm. and I really, really want to get to um, the uh, ro- the Romans five six to eight passage. Mm. Um, yeah, because you do some uh, putting Paul in conversation with classical literature here. Um, I'd never read anything like this, and so I, 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 I definitely want to get this included. So, <laughs> right, if you yeah, could address yeah. it too. Yes, please. Absolutely, yes. In in in, in the third chapter, I, I address the, the the passage in Romans five where 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 Paul says where Paul Paul talks about uh, mm. Christ dying for the ungodly, and says uh, for very rarely will someone die for a, a a righteous person, though possibly for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Right. But God demonstrated His love for us in this that that uh, that uh, Christ died you know, even while we were still sinners Christ died uh, for the ungodly and so there's a contrast between what one might expect you know that, that one can imagine you know it's it's, it's not uh, substitutionary death are, are not completely unknown outside of a Christian context someone might uh, dare to die for a good person right uh, and um, and uh, but but even you know, Christ's death on the cross is is greater even than that um, and I think the, the place in, in Paul's culture and environment where one finds lots of references to um, other people dying for each other is actually not in a Jewish context so much, but in, a, in, in the Greek uh, context in which Paul, Paul operated. And I, I enjoyed writing this chapter partly because you know, classical literature was my, my first love, and I read, I read lots of classical literature before I, you know, before I ever picked up the Greek New Testament, <laughs> um, uh, uh, having, having studied it, studied it at school, and then, um, you know, my, uh, I started, um, I started studying classics at, uh, at Cambridge here, uh, before later switching to theology. Um, and uh, I particularly focus in this chapter on the example of Euripides' play, The Alcestis, which yes. is the paramount example of um, of substitutionary death in 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 Greek in the whole of Greek culture, I think, you know, uh, and and then you know so that then Alcestis is is used as uh, as a pattern for other substitutionary deaths and so on, and uh, and this was this was one of my one of the things I enjoyed most because the the uh, the the play Euripides' play the Alcestis was the first ever Greek drama I saw performed in, in, in Greek when I was when I was 13 and it made a great impression on me wow. um, so um, uh, yeah I, I, so, so w- w- what what one has in the in the whole story of, of the Alcestis is that um, King Admetus who's this uh, mythical king mm-hmm. uh, has been told uh, by Apollo by by uh, and by death that he he's going to die but that he has a he has an opt he has an option if he can find someone to die in his place, then he'll escape 
from uh, from from death. So it's it's sort of the whole situation is set up as about substitution. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what Admetus does is he goes to his parents and asks them if they'll die in his. This is rather sort of odd <laughs> odd narrative. Of course, he goes to his parents and asks them if they'll die in his place. And his father says, "Yeah, how dare you? You know." useless young man you know uh, you haven't you haven't died for me why should I die for you um, and so his parents you know parents uh, 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 don't uh, don't fall in but uh, his wife uh, Alcestis the queen uh, does agree to die in his place and so she's presented uh, not just in this play but uh, in the whole of Greek literature thereafter in Plato and uh, philosophy other philosophical writings and uh, literature that uh, you know that she is the great exemplar of of love because she was willing to die in her husband's husband's place mm. and uh, so i think it's this kind of this kind of uh, motif this motif of substitutionary death that one finds paul alluding to in in romans 5 he's not alluding there to uh, old, old testament scripture he, uh, he's not alluding there to Jewish martyrdom, because this is a death for another person that he's referring to when he right. says, for "Scarcely will one find, scarcely will you find anyone who will die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die." This is, this is an individual dying for another individual, and so uh, that's why the uh, the parallel with someone like Alcestis and that that tradition of uh, Greek vicarious death sort of fits in fits in well with what Paul's saying. And with what Paul is contrasting uh, with, so I think I think you know Paul is uh, here here tapping into the same kind of thing that he is himself. Otherwise, you know, the comparison has got to work. It's got to be talking about the same kind of thing at least mm-hmm. uh, for the comparison to work. And so that's what Paul is doing in Romans five. He's saying there's a point of continuity uh, between his understanding of the gospel and typical Greek uh, motifs of substitutionary death. But on the other hand, there's also uh, a strong discontinuity. Mm. In in someone like Alcestis's case, she's dying for her husband, whom she loves, who's of the same kind of rank and status as her, uh, even you know superior to her, being being the king to her queen. Um, where where whereas Paul, of course, highlights the fact that uh, Christ is dying for the ungodly. Mm. Uh, Christ is dying for those who have dishonoured his father, uh, who are not in a, a relationship of of, of love with him and so on and so again that's the the extraordinary miracle of the gospel that uh, there is a a resemblance between christ's death uh, and greek heroic deaths of this kind but uh, there's also a strong uh, dis- dissimilarity as well mm. one of the things that i got out of this and and i really i really enjoyed this section as i as i said mm. i'm 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 a lit guy and being able to pull in um pull in the dramas and uh, you know as as well as the 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 philosophical background um was i i really appreciated that a lot it no, made thanks. it made me rethink um romans 5 6 to 8 i i usually think of paul as a um not necessarily dry, but as a very uh, kind of clinical or technical theological writer who's interested mm-hmm. in explaining concepts and how they connect. Mm-hmm. But by connecting this passage to literature, um, you let me read this this verse as as Paul attempting to uh, to say that this this crucified one who your culture would tend to see as as pitiful um, mm-hmm. is in fact, according to the to your own 
um, narrative logic in in some sense to the to the kinds of stories that you tell on value. Um, it's it's a heroic death, so that it's mm. it's not just explaining the, the theological concepts, but also um, a move for uh, affecting the uh, affecting the the reader. Mm, yeah, that you should yeah, feel a, a particular way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a good point. Cause I, and it's interesting. And Romans five one to eleven is is um, uh, it, it, it has a lot about feeling in it. it it's, mm. it's one of the one, it's one of those passage where passage where Paul is very emotive. Um, yeah, and uh, um, and he the, part of the way in which he achieves that is you know, to use the phrase you used earlier, conversation partners. Here he mm. he takes a, takes a very different conversation partner uh, in this case to uh, that, that what he does in one Corinthians fifteen. Yeah, mm. and, and especially with the uh, the idea of uh, the unexpectedness of mm. of death for the wicked. Uh, you, you you talk about. Um, the the impious in particular being ones who carry a kind of taint that would bring down the wrath of the gods. But the idea that you know that that the god the, the, would 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 intervene and and take the place of take the punishment for um, the ones who who actually are the rightful objects of divine vengeance. Again, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The world turned yes, upside yes. down. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The word that I think is often translated, you know, Christ died for the ungodly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that word is a is a, a, a word that often has you know connotations of of uh, of, of, of pollution, uh, of offence to the gods, of, mm-hmm. of you know, the, the old uh, the old old idea of hubris that uh, the greatest mm-hmm. the greatest and most disastrous sin that one can 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 commit is is uh, is. Uh, Trying somehow to uh, to dishonor the gods by saying that you're equal to them, and that of course is part of the biblical drama that uh, uh, it's the, the attempt to be like God that uh, that is Adam and Eve's downfall, and indeed the whole of humanity thereafter. And uh, it's it, it's against this backdrop that Christ has has come to to die for us, which puts it in puts puts the gospel in very sharp relief. Well, I have been steering this conversation so far with questions but at the end of our uh, profiles interviews we like to uh, give our guests the opportunity to um, to have the last word and take it in a direction that they choose so what have we not said um, about this book or about this topic that you would like our listeners to to carry with them as uh, as our episode comes to a close well, I think it would be to to uh, just pick up on something which I mentioned in passing earlier. That uh, I think if one Corinthians fifteen is a is a very helpful passage to to have in one's uh, in one's back pocket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can put it crudely like that because uh, it really gives us a distillation, a summary of the gospel. And so I think you know if one reads those first eleven verses of one Corinthians fifteen. Uh, um, th- those are a very useful uh, uh, reminder, both for ourselves as a, and as a, a passage that we can use to to remind others um, of what as, of what is of a central importance to uh, Paul. Or what you know in this definition of the very gospel, of the, of the good news of the gospel that uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, uh, and that He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That uh, those two pregnant phrases. Are, are really at the core of it all, but but then 
with those with those phrases saying according to the scriptures that means that one therefore has to uh, see those little bullet points there against a, a much wider backdrop mm. uh, as well so that that would that would just be my parting shot i suppose <laughs> excellent well i have enjoyed this conversation a great deal sir um and i th- i thank you for thank you for having me i have to yeah well um Listeners, that's uh, all that we have time for. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. I certainly have. Um, we have been talking to Dr. Simon Gathercole about his new book, Defending Substitution, an essay on atonement and Paul. It's available this month from Baker Academic, and when we post the show notes for this uh, episode, we will link directly to that page. If you'd like to leave comments uh or uh, give us any kind of feedback on this episode. Uh, You can leave comments on uh, the show notes for the blog when that posts at christianhumanist.org. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. I'm David Grubbs. I'm hoping that uh, you've all enjoyed this episode and that you tune in for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Zach Schmidt.